Years ago, I ran across a tabloid article entitled, Atheist Burns Bursts into Flames. Atheist Bursts into Flames, Dateline, Lille, France. Now, let me say up front, this tabloid in which this article appeared is known for its questionable stories. In fact, I really doubt if this story is completely true. But I want you to follow with me, for whether it's true or not, it makes my point tonight. Well, according to this report, a rabble-rousing atheist named Adrian Gates had been making the rounds of churches in Lille, France. He was causing pastors and worshipers great grief. He had even been hauled off to jail on occasion. But his reign of terror came to a fiery end one Easter Sunday. He entered a church on the south side of Lille and started shouting profanities at Pastor Clement Tussaud in his congregation. One of the churchgoers said that he was shaking his fist at the pastor and he was screaming out, God is dead. God is a fraud. He was ranting and raving, taking God's name in vain. He even told the people in the church that they were idiots for believing in God. And that's when it happened. The article states, Gates suddenly burst into flames like someone had put a torch to him and burned him to a crisp. Pastor Tussaud was quoted in the article as saying, The Almighty struck him down before our very eyes. One of the church members said, We got a first-hand look at hell. People commented that the flames shot 20 feet high into the air. And incredibly, no one was burned but gates. No one was even cinched, not even the floor or the pews. All that was left was the pile of ashes that had once been Adrian Gates. One of the firemen who got the call admitted that there was no explanation for the blaze. An investigator made the comment, So if someone wants to tell me this was the work of God, all I can say is it makes sense to me. And this would make sense to us as well. For most of us, this is how life is supposed to work. When somebody picks on God, they just get cut down to size. God barbecues the blasphemer. Anybody curses God should get fired on the spot, don't you think? Almighty God should take vengeance on any puny punk who dares to defile him. Hey, if we were God, this is the way we would handle the heretic. But here's my point. That's not the approach that God takes. This is why I have my doubts about the authenticity of the article. For the God of the Bible is amazingly patient and long-suffering with sinners. It's true, God promises the unbeliever a fiery finale. But in most cases, it's after he has spent a lifetime being kind and forbearing and enduring toward that person. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9 says of our Father in heaven, God is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. We often confuse, 
And we get frustrated in the face of God's patience. We wonder how God can put up with evil and tolerate such blasphemy. We moan. Why does God keep his cool? Why doesn't he just annihilate those people who rebel against him? And we think this all the while forgetting that we were once one of those peoples. This was Habakkuk's hang-up. He saw corrupt people getting away with their corruption. And there was nothing he could do about it. He was so disturbed, so perturbed over the wickedness in Jerusalem that he was ready to scream. He had prayed, God, what are you doing? And when the Lord's answer came, he didn't really like God's reply. As a matter of fact, it stirred up more questions than it answered. God told him that he would destroy the wicked. In fact, he would raise up the ferocious Babylonian army to invade Judah. The judgment, the fire from heaven, if you will, will fall in the form of the barbaric Babylonians. Now, did you hear about the guy who said, I was wondering why that frisbee appears larger the closer it gets to you, and then it hit me. Just, just, just a little attempt at humor. Well, then it just hit Habakkuk. It just hit him. He was about to applaud God's administration of justice. The Babylonians are coming. When it hit him. God, did you say you were going to use the Babylonians to judge your people, Israel? The Babylonians? This further confused Habakkuk. The Babylonians were idolaters. They were vile and violent people, far more wicked than the people they were being sent to judge. This would be like the teacher using a high school dropout to tutor the B student. What is God, what God is doing here makes no sense. It'd be like washing off mud with dirty water. How do you respond when God doesn't seem to make sense? When he works in ways or allows circumstances for which there's no clear explanation. Do you ever jump to the wrong conclusions? Oh, God must not love me. God must not care about me. God must have gone to sleep at the wheel. God must be powerless to help. There are some people who've even jumped to the fatal conclusion that there is no God, that it's all a crock. They were foolish to believe in a loving God. But rather than jump to conclusions, Habakkuk climbed to the ramparts. We saw this last week. He scaled the city walls. He ascended into the tower. In other words, he found a quiet place. Habakkuk realized that God's ways are higher than his ways. God's thoughts are higher than his thoughts. When God doesn't make sense, the problem isn't God, it's us. You see, God never loses his poise or his purpose or his power. But we can lose sight of his perspective. When Habakkuk was puzzled, he muzzled his mouth and he climbed to the tower to regain God's perspective. Hey, when you're faced with puzzling situations, you can do two things. You can either jump or you can climb. 
You can jump to the wrong conclusions about God, or you can climb into a conversation with God. You can draw wrong conclusions that will be proven later how foolish you were, or you can come to God and consider His wisdom, understand His will, then conclude that He is God and He is in control. Well, Habakkuk suggests that we do the latter, that we climb the ladder, and that we enter into God's presence and let God speak to our hearts. In fact, Habakkuk sums it all up in chapter 2, verse 4. You remember the, you remember the verse, the just shall live by his faith. The just shall live by his faith. Do you live by faith? You know, some people are visual. They like to see. Some people are cerebral. They like to think. Some people are emotional. They like to feel. I think Habakkuk was all the above. He was visual and cerebral and emotional. But none of the above served him well in his relationship with God. And none of that will serve you well in your relationship God, with God. For we're called to live not by what we see or by what we think or by what we feel. We are called to live by faith. The just shall live by faith. Which brings us to chapter 2, verse 4, where we left off last week. Beginning in verse 5, the Lord pronounces five woes on the Babylonians. God is essentially saying to Habakkuk, yes, I'm going to use the Babylonians to judge the Jews, but when I'm done, Habakkuk, I'm then going to see to it that the Babylonians get judged as well. In short, he's asking Habakkuk to trust him. God is asking us to trust him too. Verse 5. Well, indeed, because he transgresses by wine, he is a proud man. And he does not stay at home. Because he enlarges his desire as hell, and he is like death and cannot be satisfied. He gathers to himself all nations and heaps up for himself all peoples. The evil of the Babylonians had not gone, gone unnoticed. God was aware of King Nebuchadnezzar's wicked ways. For one, apparently the king drank too much. He mentions it here. He was also proud and greedy. He didn't know his place. As God puts it, he does not stay home. His ego was as large as hell fire, we're told. And in the rest of chapter 2, the prophet is going to describe Nebuchadnezzar's five offenses. In verse 6, he'll be condemned for his greed. In verse 9, it's his gain. In verse 12, his gore, his hostilities. In verse 15, his guile. And in verse 19, his gullibility. Now first here, he's condemned for his greed. He says that he does not know how to stay home. He enlarges his desire as hell enlarges. Did you know that 50 million light years away in the constellation of Virgo, there exists a black hole Two to three billion times the weight of our own sun. It's an enormous object. A black hole is a collapsed star whose gravitational pull is so strong that it eats everything that it comes in contact with. 
Even light, light traveling at 186,000 miles per second, gets sucked into the pool of a black hole. Light can't even escape. For years, the concept of a black hole was postulated. It was theorized. Until recently, thanks to the Hubble telescope, black holes have now actually been discovered. The Hubble telescope has observed a black hole traveling at 1.2 million miles per hour with a temperature of 18,000 degrees Fahrenheit. It's estimated that this cosmic sinkhole has sucked up billions of other stars. And there are some Bible scholars who theorize that perhaps hell is actually an enormous black hole that God has tucked away somewhere in the universe. It's interesting. You know, a black hole would fit the biblical description of hell. It's a consuming fire. It's a bottomless pit. It's actually a lake of fire. It's on fire, and yet it's black. It traps its own light. The Bible refers to hell as a lake of fire and as outer darkness, apparent contradictions. And yet a black hole would actually fit both those descriptions. It's just interesting. Here Nebuchadnezzar is described as a black hole. He's never at home. He's always on the prowl. He consumes everything with which he comes in contact. His hunger for more is insatiable. Like hell, the king of Babylon is constantly enlarging his kingdom. And did you know that you are either a black hole or a shining star? Did you know that? You're one of the two. You either live for yourself, consuming everything you touch, sucking up everything for yourself, or... You shine like a star, giving off light and warmth to others, shining out the glory of God. Here's the question, are you a sucker or a shiner? Verse 6 tells us, Will not all these take up a a proverb against him and a taunting riddle against him and say, Woe to him who increases what is not his? How long? And to whom who loads himself with many pledges? Here's the first woe against Babylon. It's greed. You know, he's been increasing what is not his. How long is this going to last? Will not your creditors rise up suddenly? Will they not awaken who oppress you and you will become their booty? The old King James Version renders the phrase, Shall they not rise up suddenly that shall bite thee? You know, we still use that expression, taking a bite out of somebody. Nebuchadnezzar was pillaging the nations before him, but all he's taking will need to be paid back. One day, Babylon's creditors will take a bite out of Nebuchadnezzar. He says, because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the people shall plunder you because of men's blood and the violence of the land and the city and all who dwell in it. Lust and unbridled desire for more and more and more eventually backfires. It's interesting how the Eskimos kill wolves. They coat the blade of their knife with layers and layers of frozen blood. And then they plant that knife down in the snow. The wolf sniffs the blood. It's attracted to the knife. And it starts to lick the blade. Well, the more the wolf tastes the blood, the stronger his thirst for it becomes. His lust for more overshadows the sting of the razor-sharp blade. 
the wolf ends up unable to distinguish between the blood on the knife and his own. Thus, he ends up consuming his own blood. In the morning, the wolf is found dead in the snow. And such is the legacy of any lust. An uncontrolled desire in our lives, it eventually controls you. If there's a fire burning out of control in your life, it's time to douse the blaze. Verse 9 tells us, Woe to him who covets evil gain for his house, that he may set his nest on high, that he may be delivered from the power of disaster. The second woe is that of gain. Nebuchadnezzar thought he could buy protection, that he could build an empire that calamity couldn't touch. And people today make the same mistake. They think enough money can shelter them from life's problems, that they can purchase peace, that they can buy some rest. Not so. You remember what Jesus said? He spoke of the deceitfulness of riches. Riches are deceitful. They never give you what they promise. Money can't buy health or happiness or holiness. A millionaire was once asked, how many dollars does it take to make you truly happy? His revealing reply, only one more. Money won't buy happiness. He says, you give shameful counsel to your house, cutting off many peoples and sin against your soul. For the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the timbers will answer it. Woe to him who builds a town with bloodshed who establishes a city by iniquity. This is the third woe against Nebuchadnezzar. It's it's his gore. It's the gore, the violence, the bloodthirstiness by which he spread his kingdom. Nebuchadnezzar bowled over and intimidated his his opponents with brute force. He not only conquered nations, he deliberately crushed them. And God was not pleased with this king. We're told, behold, Is it not of the Lord of hosts that the peoples labor to feed the fire and nations weary themselves in vain? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Ultimately, Nebuchadnezzar will be crushed. The prophet says that in the end, the earth will be filled not with the glory of Nebuchadnezzar, but with the glory of the Lord. Woe to him who gives drink to his neighbor, pressing him to your bottle, even to make him drunk that you may look on his nakedness. The fourth woe reveals Babylon's guile, their stealth, their deception. You see, Nebuchadnezzar was quite subversive. He got the world drunk on his promises. And then he slipped in and took advantage of those nations. He manipulated the kings into compromising positions. And this is how Satan will work with you. Before he tempts us with a sin... He twists our reasoning. He gains our trust. He deceives us into thinking that his ways are best, that he has our best interests at heart. He lures us into a bed of compromise. Beware of his schemes. The Bible calls them his wiles. Verse 16, you are filled with shame instead of glory. You also drink and be exposed as uncircumcised. The cup of the Lord's right hand will be turned against you and utter shame will be on your glory. Remember verse 5, it spoke of Nebuchadnezzar's pride. But in the end, he's the one who will get drunk and disgrace himself. Utter shame will smother his glory, Habakkuk tells us. 
Reminds me of a 70-year-old actress who died in her New York City apartment. She had a box of newspaper clippings that she had taken from her career, her fame. One day she was removing the clippings. She had them up on a top shelf. And the box in which the clippings were in fell on top of her. She suffocated under her own press clippings. You might say she was pressed to death. And likewise, it was Nebuchadnezzar's boast that ensured his destruction. He died from his own pride. Habakkuk says, For the violence done to Lebanon will cover you and the plunder of beasts which made them afraid because of men's blood and the violence of the land and the city and of all who dwell in it. Babylon's ravaging of Lebanon will come back to haunt them. What profit is the image that its maker should carve it, the molded image, a teacher of lies, that the maker of its mold should trust in it to make mute idols. Woe to him who says to wood, awake, to silent stone, arise, it shall teach. Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, yet in it there is no breath at all. Here's God's final woe on the Babylonians, their gullibility. They were foolish to trust in these silly idols, sleeping sticks, silent stones. Why create gods who are never conscious, who are unable to communicate? How gullible is it to bow to idols who have no breath at all? There's a wilderness club in the Northwest called Mountain Man Anonymous. An initiation into this club involves a dangerous stunt. Initiates have to be willing to allow a fellow member of the club to shoot a tin can off the top of their head with a bow and arrow at 100 paces. Well, a man named Anthony Roberts, he was one such candidate for membership. Sadly, though, the member missed and the arrow went right through Roberts' eye socket. Amazingly, it missed all his vital organs. Robert survived. His doctor actually commented, and I quote, he can be grateful that he has a small brain. (laughs) You don't say. Well, Habakkuk is saying that anyone who rejects the overwhelming evidence for the true and living God to follow after false gods, idols, silent stones, sleeping sticks, are you kidding? How foolish is that? These are people with a small brain. God's glory, the evidence of his existence is splattered all around us. The earth, the heavens declare the handiwork of God. Why would you turn from the true and living God to follow after false gods? Or worse, to invent your own God? Or even more silly, to set yourself up as God and yet people do it every day. These people who have small brains. Psalm 14 verse 1 tells us the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. In contrast to the breathless idols of Babylon, verse 20 declares, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Habakkuk had been up in the tower. He had climbed to the top of the wall. He had found that quiet place. He had gotten a glimpse of God's wisdom and God's glory. Do you retreat there often to get a glimpse of God's glory? And be renewed in God's wisdom. It was there on top of the walls. 
that Habakkuk realized God is faithful. The Lord's sovereignty is undiminished. Habakkuk decided to live by faith. I hope we will too. God showed Habakkuk that Babylon was just a blip on the screen of history. It was not the glory of Babylon, but the glory of God that would shine forever. Satan didn't defeat Habakkuk because he couldn't deceive him. Habakkuk knew to climb instead of jump. Chapter 3 starts. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet on Shigianoth. Now the meaning of this word Shigianoth is unclear. It also appears though in Psalm 7. It could have been a type of instrument. It might have been some kind of musical notation. We're really not sure. Habakkuk 3 is actually a psalm. You see, Habakkuk was not only a priest, he was not only a prophet, but he was also a musician. He was a songwriter and composer. The last verse of chapter 3 says that this psalm was to be played on stringed instruments and delivered to the chief musician to be used in the temple worship. One suggested translation for the word Shigianoth, it can mean to wander or to ramble. The phrase could imply an erratic beat or maybe a disjointed melody, which means this may have been the first hip-hop song, hip-hop song ever written right here, right here. Verse 2 tells us, O Lord, I have heard your speech. And was afraid. O Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known in wrath. Remember mercy. What a wonderful line. In wrath, Lord, remember mercy. See, Habakkuk is confessing that he was wrong. He's saying, Lord, I now get your point. I was rash. I forgot your patience is essential for salvation. I was looking through the lens of wrath and judgment and malice. But in the tower, I was able to look through your lens of mercy. Lord, in wrath, remember mercy. In Judaism, there is a legend told about Abraham. One day, he found a fellow traveler on the road. He invited the man into his tent and he prepared for him a meal. When the man went to eat the meal, he failed to give thanks to God. Abraham questioned him. He replied, well, I worship only fire, and I reverence no other God. Abraham became incensed. He threw the man out of his tent. God called to his friend Abraham and asked him what he had done. Abraham replied, Lord, I forced him out because he didn't worship you. God answered him, I have tolerated this man for 80 years, although he dishonors me. Could you not have endured him for one night? See, Habakkuk realizes now that God is patient. Not because he's powerless, but because he really does want to pardon and forgive us. But there's even more here to Habakkuk's statement. He's also saying, Lord, I'm not totally sure of your work or your timing, but I trust that you are wise And that you are wonderful. Habakkuk has learned that the just walk not by sight or by smarts or by sensation, but by faith. It's not what we see. It's not what we can figure out. It's not what we feel. But we live by faith. 
Habakkuk is proof that time in the tower with God changes a person's perspective. If you have a hard time understanding God's ways and accepting His will, perhaps you need to be alone with God on top of the walls. It's in God's presence that a feeble faith can grow strong. Habakkuk writes in verse 3, God came from Teman, the Holy One from Mount Paran. Selah, His glory, covered the heavens and the earth was full of His praise. This word Selah is another musical notation. It means to pause and think it through. Whenever you see that word Selah, it means it's, it's calling on you to pause and think about it. It was at the Selah that the musicians played their instrumental interlude. It's where the music kept playing. The lyrics stopped, but the music kept playing. This is probably where the lead guitar player got in a few licks. Every time you see Selah, you should stop and reconsider the previous thought. Mull it over again in your mind. Now, some Bible scholars take this next section from verse 3 through verse 16 to be historic. It speaks of the Lord at the Exodus, meeting Israel in Teman or Edom and bringing them up through the wilderness into the land of Canaan. But other Bible scholars treat these verses as prophetic. You remember Isaiah 63 describes Jesus' second coming. And it reveals that the Lord will come up from Basra or Teman wearing blood-stained robes. Perhaps you remember that when we went through Isaiah that he's going to execute judgment on the armies of the world while defending the Jews who take refuge at Petra. So which is it here? Historic or is it prophetic? Well, I believe it's both. In this psalm, God wants Habakkuk and the Jews to realize that just as God has delivered them in the past, he will also deliver them in the future. And you know, it's by focusing on God's past work And putting our faith in God's future work that we can find peace in the present and that we can trust Him today. Now verse 4 tells us, His brightness was like the light. He had rays flashing from His hand and there His power was hidden. Before Him went pestilence and fever followed at His feet. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and startled the nations, and the everlasting mountains were scattered. The perpetual hills bowed. His ways are everlasting. I saw the tents of Kushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian trembled. Here Habakkuk speaks of Egypt's neighbors and the fear they showed at the sight of God's power. He's probably referencing here God's shaking of Mount Sinai. Remember when God's presence descended upon Mount Sinai, the mountain literally quaked. God had lightning in his hand, as he says here. He also mentions the plagues upon Egypt. The exodus startled the nations. Verse 8, O Lord, were you displeased with the rivers? Was your anger against the rivers? Was your wrath against the sea that you rode on your horses, your chariots of salvation? Your bow was made quite ready. Oaths were sworn over your arrows. Selah, you divided the earth with rivers. You remember God divided both the Red Sea at the Exodus and he divided the Jordan River when the children of Israel were brought into the promised land. 
and God will divide the rivers and shake the mountains again. He'll do both when he judges this earth in the last days, just prior to Jesus' return during those seven years of what we call great tribulation. He says, the mountains saw you and trembled. The overflowing of the water passed by. The deep uttered its voice and lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their habitation. At the light of your arrows, they went at the shining of your glittering spear. You remember the story of Joshua at the battle of Beth Horon. The sun and moon stood still. God worked a cosmic miracle. You remember the story. General Joshua, he prayed for more daylight so that he could completely vanquish his enemy. And God caused the sun to stand still on its march across the horizon. The extra time and the hailstones that accompanied it from heaven won the victory. It was an amazing miracle, a cosmic miracle. And the book of Revelation teaches us that in the last days, God will again work these kinds of catastrophic miracles. He'll literally rock this earth with his celestial judgments. Verse 12, you marched through the land in indignation. You trampled the nations in anger. Now, when did God himself march through the land to do battle? Or is this just metaphorical, poetical language? Well, I believe Habakkuk is speaking quite literally. You know, we often say that Joshua fought the battle of Jericho. But did he? You remember the story? Joshua had some help. On the night before the battle, the captain of the Lord's army appeared to Joshua and basically usurped his authority. He took over the command. In fact, the next day, Joshua followed the captain of the Lord's orders. I believe, and the scripture bears witness, that this captain was actually a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. It was Jesus who marched with the troops around Jericho and won the battle that day. In fact, he marched through the land. He was the mastermind behind the conquest of Canaan. Habakkuk continues, You went forth for the salvation of your people, for salvation with your anointed. You struck the head from the house of the wicked by laying bare from foundation to neck. Selah. You know, it's interesting. Jesus not only won the first battle in Canaan at Jericho, he will win the final battle staged at Armageddon. Habakkuk says, you're anointed. It's literally, your Messiah will go out to win salvation for his people. In the final fight, Jesus will once and for all strike the head of the house of the wicked. He will defeat Satan once and for all. Remember the ancient promise given to the serpent in the Garden of Eden? Genesis 3 verse 15 says, I will put enmity between you and and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. It was the seed of the woman. That was the Messiah. The seed of the serpent is the Antichrist. The cross was Jesus' heel bruise. But it's at his second coming that our Messiah will crush the serpent's head and defeat the Antichrist and his armies. And notice the strategically placed Selah. Here's something you need to pause and think about. Here's something you really need to mull over and consider. 
especially if tonight you're under the gun or if your back's against the wall or if there's two strikes against you or if you're down for the count or if you're not sure you can get back up on your feet, here's something you need to pause and you need to consider. Think of the victory that Jesus won at the cross. Think of the victory he'll win in the end. When Jesus returns, he'll defeat the house of the wicked by cutting off its head. That means that no matter what you're currently facing, Jesus can help you overcome it. He won at the cross. He'll win in the end. That means he's faithful in the present. The just shall live by his faith. Verse 14. You thrust through with his own arrows the head of his villages. They came out like a whirlwind to scatter me. Their rejoicing was like feasting on the poor in secret. You walked through the sea with your horses, through the heap of great waters. When I heard, my body trembled. My lips quivered at the voice. Rottenness entered my bones. And I trembled in myself that I might rest in the day of trouble. When he comes up to the people, he will invade them with his troops. You remember in chapter 1, Habakkuk was in turmoil. He he had been swamped, overwhelmed by his circumstances. In chapter 2, he learns to trust the Lord. He gets his eyes off the present circumstances and he sees the ultimate plight of the wicked. Now, in chapter 3, Habakkuk triumphs. He recalls how God has always orchestrated circumstances from the exodus to the end of time. That in the past and in the future, God is sovereign. Habakkuk now accepts, he even rejoices that God is in control. Habakkuk rose from turmoil to triumph when he learned to trust. He rose from turmoil to triumph when he learned to trust. This is what we need to learn, to live by faith. And here his trust is strengthened with a fresh perspective. Reminders of God's faithfulness in the past. And his promises for the future are what strengthen our faith today. It puts us at peace. It's when I truly understand that history is indeed his story. That God has written the script in advance and he controls the outcome. That's when I can be at peace. That's when I can truly rest. But here's our problem. The the reason peace eludes us is that we're so wrapped up in the present. We forget the past. We're too short-sighted to focus on the future. Hey, I got some experience with you guys. Some of you have come to me with your problems. You're worried that God won't come through. When just six months earlier, you and I were rejoicing over God's love and faithfulness in your life. What happened? He's never let you down before. He's not going to start now. We need to remember his power. Remember his provision. And we need to focus on God's promises for the future. You know, whenever I read a book, I hate to admit this, but whenever I read a book, I usually like to just thumb to the last chapter and just kind of see how the story ends. I may not read it all, but I like to just kind of get the gist of it, you know, and It just sort of removes the suspense. I enjoy the book better, you know. I can actually put it down from time to time 
without having to sit through and just kind of read it to the end. I get so captivated. I think when it comes to my own future, I don't really like suspense. I'm kind of one of those persons that like to have all my ducks in a row. You know, I kind of like to have a know how things are going to turn out. That's why shortly after I became a Christian, guess what I did? I decided to read the end of the book and to find out how my story is going to end. And guess what I discovered? Check this out. No matter what happens now, I'm going to win in the end. I'm a joint heir with Jesus Christ. I'm going to reign forever with him. Hallelujah is what they say. Hey, knowing how the story ends eliminates any suspense in the present. My destiny, your destiny, we're going to be okay, guys. God is going to take care of us. We can relax. We can rest. The future isn't a mystery. In Christ, it's a certainty. Once there was a Christian, and he had a pal with him. They were walking down Fifth Avenue in New York City. They were discussing life and all its difficulties. This Christian stopped at the Rockefeller Center, and he took his pal into the courtyard, and there he showed him the statue of Atlas. Here was a man bulging with biceps, holding the world on top of his shoulders. His face shows signs of obvious strain. But then the Christian took his pal, and they walked across the street to St. Patrick's Cathedral. And he took him there behind the altar to a small shrine that was dedicated to the, baby, to the boy Jesus. Actually, there's a statue of Jesus there, about nine years old. The small little statue of Jesus has its hand, his hand stretched out. And guess what's sitting in his palm? The world. The world is sitting in his palm. He's holding the world in his hand. He's got the whole world in his hands. And the message to his friend was crystal clear. You can strain, you can struggle, you can try to carry the world on your shoulders. You can be an atlas. Or you can rest in the knowledge that Jesus has it all in the palm of his hand. He is in control of this world and your life. This is why the just shall live by faith. And here Habakkuk starts to sing. He starts to sing. Here he sings the loudest. Verses 17 and 18 are a couple of my favorite verses in all of the Bible. Habakkuk writes, Though the fig tree may not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, though the labor of the olive may fail, and the fields yield no food, Though the flock may be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. A modern equivalent might be, though the stock market crashes, and the banks foreclose, and the company lays me off, and my house burns to the ground, and my teenager wrecks the car, and the Falcons lose all 16 games. (laughs) Verse 18, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. Here's Habakkuk's conclusion. Come what may, regardless of how rough life gets, he says, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. 
And as beautiful as those words are, our English translations, they don't do it justice. It doesn't capture the full flavor and the colorfulness of what comes out in the Hebrew. The word rejoice, the Hebrew word rejoice, it means to jump up and down. The word joy, it means to spin around, to twirl. You remember that song we used to sing years ago? Maybe you sung it. I I know I sung it. It went something like, jump down, turn around, clap your hands and praise the Lord. You remember that song? Jump down, turn around, clap your hands and praise the Lord. There are even hand motions to it. I don't remember. We kind of get goofy. We have a lot of fun singing it. But this is the spirit in which Habakkuk wrote. He's not being goofy, but he's definitely being giddy. He rejoices. He laughs. He dances. Knowing that come what may, God is in charge and we can rejoice. Habakkuk is saying, when calamity strikes, I'm not going to worry. I'm not going to fret. I'm not going to sweat. I'm going to dance for joy because I know that my God is in control. The prophet has chosen to live by faith, not by sight or smarts or senses. He's going to trust in God. God's peace will never be found in understanding a plan. You think if you understand the plan, you'll be at peace. Not so. God's peace will never be found in making sense of complicated circumstances. God's peace is found in knowing a person. Ephesians 2 verse 14 reads, Jesus is our peace. Notice, Jesus doesn't give peace. He is our peace. You you recognize this. No Jesus, no peace. But no Jesus and no peace. Habakkuk rested when he focused on God's character and his faithfulness. God promises a peace that passes understanding, not a peace caused by understanding. Did you get that? He promises a peace that passes understanding, not a peace caused by understanding. God's peace is the result of us having faith, not the result of us figuring out the situation. These verses remind me of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 18. There it says, in everything give thanks. Notice what Paul doesn't say. He doesn't say, for everything give thanks. I can't give thanks for everything. There's a lot of things that happen in my life that are real tragedies. I can't, may not be able to give thanks for it, but I can give thanks in the midst of everything. I can give thanks despite my situation. I can thank God that he's still in control, that all things are working together for good to those who love him, to those that are called according to his purpose. Philippians 4 verse 4 is another great verse. It tells us rejoice in the Lord always. I can't always rejoice in my circumstances, but I can always rejoice in the Lord. Verse 20, he says, the Lord God is my strength. He will make my feet like deer's feet and he will make me walk on my high heels. You know, a deer walks on rocky cliffs. A deer, you'll see them running along mountain ledges and 
grazing on steep slopes. The terrain the deer traverses is treacherous, and yet a deer prances and dances as if it's on level ground, not lethal ground. Whenever we go to Israel, and we'll go again in February for any of you that like to go with us. When we go to Israel, we visit in Gedi, which is the oasis right down there by the Dead Sea. And usually we see the ibex, the local deer. And we see them up high on the mountain ledges. They're so graceful, even in the midst of dangerous circumstances. And here God is promising you and me deer's feet. He's promising us deer's feet. If we trust him, he'll give us stable footing. Even when we walk down shaky terrain. Walk by faith and you'll dance in the midst of danger. You will prance your way around problems. You'll enjoy God's incredible peace even in scary circumstances. The just shall live by faith. Habakkuk closes with these instructions. He says, To the chief musician with my stringed instruments. Apparently, when this song was played, Habakkuk wanted it peppy. Absolutely. Man, he called for the stringed instruments. He wanted the string ensemble to accompany this song. This little prophecy of Habakkuk. What a book. From sighing in the valley, chapter 1, to seeking God in the tower, chapter 2. Now Habakkuk is standing on the mountains and singing God's praise. And you too can sing a peppy song whenever you learn that the just shall live by faith.